Welcome to the Fern Podcast, As the Season Turns. Released on the first of the month, each episode will follow the changing landscape of the seasons, from the moon and the stars to the tides and the trees. I'm Leah Lainderts, author of The Almanac, A Seasonal Guide, and this podcast is a collaboration between myself and Fern, makers of small-batch organic perfume, who blend, barrel-age and bottle four fragrances a year, released at the equinoxes and solstices. I love wearing fern. In my quest to live in tune with the seasons, applying the season's perfume is a lovely little ritual that reminds me to use all of my senses. We hope that this brief guide to the month ahead will awaken you to the rhythms of the year and help you to settle deeper into the seasons. The Sunrise On July the 1st, sunrise is at 4.23am in Inverness and at 5.11am in Padstow. The difference between the sunrise times of June and those of July are subtle, but the change is happening. All year the sunrise has crept earlier and earlier, and now it is five minutes later in Inverness and two minutes later in Padstow. Subtle, perhaps, but a major shift has occurred. Perhaps we needn't dwell on that too much for now. In the past, this would have been a time in the year to be up at dawn, no matter how early it fell, because one of the major agricultural jobs of the year, haymaking, fell in July. Haymaking was once a job that involved the whole community, plus travellers who would have made it a part of their annual round of farm visits. The purpose of haymaking is to capture the goodness that has been nurtured all summer in meadow growth and get it dried enough that it will keep in good condition in its many months of storage, ready for the times when fresh green grass is in short supply. July was the perfect month for the best quality hay. Cut too early when the stems are still green, and it would take longer to dry out, risking a rain shower. Cut too late, and the stalks would be tough and chewy and lower in nutrients, and more suited to bedding than to food. Once a few days of good weather were forecast, it was all hands to the fields. Scything was carried out first, a staggered line of men working their way across the field, swinging their arcs. All cutting would stop by 9am, at which point workers, men, women and children, followed along the roads, tedding or tossing the hay into the air, then raking it into rows. It was turned at least twice a day, the early starts giving the longest possible days for drying, ahead of building it into hay ricks. Survival of winter livestock was entirely dependent on a good hay harvest, and that is why timing and technique and early July morning starts was so important. In the pond. In a dry summer, the water level in the pond can drop dramatically by July, and the water becomes warm and thick with algae. But these changing conditions can be positive. Many species lay their eggs in the exposed mud, for instance and so there is no need to keep topping up the pond. Let it do its natural thing, 
rains will come soon enough. The warmth can make the mud at the bottom of the pond belch gas, and the water can become stinky, but it will be rich with life. Look out for dragonflies and damselflies mating. Some do so on the wing, flying linked together, and with their long bodies bent towards each other to form a heart shape, while others will mate on a perch above the pond. Damselflies are slender and petite little lines of vibrant colour, whereas dragonflies are chunky and impossible to miss, buzzing noisily through the air and reaching the speed of up to 48 kilometres per hour. Damselflies rest with their wings against their bodies, while dragonflies rest with them outspread. Both are brilliantly coloured, the jewel pins of the pond, and have astonishing manoeuvrability, as each wing is independently controlled, allowing them to hover, wheel and dart, snatching their prey out of the air. The females lay their eggs in the water, or the damp mud around the pond edges, where they will hatch. They will live underwater as larvae or nymphs, feeding on tadpoles and water insects, molting as they grow, for up to two years before they are ready to emerge and fly the pond themselves. This month, the first of the young newts, or efts, start to emerge from the pond, the rest following in August, and will begin their lives on land, hunting for slugs, worms and insects. It takes them up to four years to develop to sexual maturity, and until then they will live in log piles and under rocks. The adult toads that visited to breed will all have left the pond by the end of the month. There is no mass exodus. They leave singly at the end of the day, hiding among the long grasses and cloaking themselves in the night. Gardens To enjoy this month Ornamental Sweet peas, lilies, daylilies, dahlias, marigolds, delphiniums, oriental poppies, oxeye daisies, cosmos, sea holly, verbena, agapanthus, verbascum, honeysuckle, hydrangea, crocosmia, sweet rocket, love in a mist, cornflowers, zinnias, pelagoniums, petunias, labelia, fuchsia. Edible. Blackcurrants, gooseberries, loganberries, raspberries, cherries, blueberries, French beans, runner beans, courgettes and courgette flowers, cucumbers, globe artichokes, peas, Florence fennel, new carrots, new potatoes, lettuces, mint, basil, chives, dill, marjoram, thyme and oregano. The Herbarium in the herbarium, a delicate fragrance scents the air. The writer has been out amid the greens of high summer, and her fingers are bleeding from the thorns of wild roses. She has only picked a few, and here they are in a glass jar, the pale petals blousy and blown against deep green leaves. Dreamy, she puts her pen to paper. Wild Rose while roses have long been associated with love and beauty, the lowly wild rose has been rather obscured by a passion for garden varieties, with their intense colours and scents. Give me the wild rose any day, 
with its delicate array of white and soft pink petals and a coy way with its perfumes. There are several kinds of wild rose, but Rosa canina, the dog rose, is the sweetest, despite its name. Confusingly, it has been known as cat rose in Cheshire and pig rose in Cornwall and Devon, names that fail to do justice to the plant's beauty, not just in flower, but bearing its deep red hips in autumn like garnet jewellery. These false fruits not only light up the hedgerow, but provide fun and games. The hooked hairs inside them make excellent itching powder to be thrust down the shirt necks of your enemies. The hairs must be painstakingly filtered out if you are making rosehip syrup. This is a delectable pink concoction containing so much vitamin C that during the Second World War, when citrus fruit could not be bought in the UK, children were paid to collect rosehips for syrup and were duly dosed with it. Also borne aloft by the dog rays is the splendid gall known as Robin's pincushion. You might take this tufty mass of red and yellow fronds for a peculiar lichen or moss, but it is created by wasp larvae which live deep inside it. These little worms and accompanying parasites were considered a bonus when Robin's pincushions were ground up by apothecaries and administered to cure kidney stones, since they would drive forth worms from the belly. This briar ball briar boss or tossle, as Robin's pincushion was also known, could cure rheumatism or toothache if worn whole about the person. This was probably uncomfortable enough to distract you from your aches and pains. In Yorkshire, schoolboys carried the galls as a charm against being flogged, and to them the plant became known, charmingly, as save wallop. While Robin's pincushion brings to my mind the wild hair or scratchy seat of Robin Goodfellow, that mischievous sprite of the woods and ways, the wild rose herself winds her way into many folk tales, especially those of the Brothers Grimm. Little Briar Rose, or Dornroschen in German, is the girl in their version of Sleeping Beauty, who falls asleep in a castle which is soon completely surrounded by a hedge of thorns. I often think of this story when I am leaning gingerly to pluck wild rose petals, so many hovering just out of reach. A jar of dried rose petals is a beautiful thing, and not surprisingly, rose is a tonic for the heart, opening it to give and receive love. July's Island St. Michael's Mount, 50.1172 degrees north, 5.4778 degrees west, Mounts Bay, Cornwall, a tidal island, population 30. St. Michael's Mount is a tidal island, perhaps the UK's most famous. At low tide you can cross to it on foot via a causeway, but at high tide the island is cut off from the mainland by waves a cycle of flood and retreat. Though on a calm day the blue of the bay and sky with the lush land surrounding makes this a romantic place. Anyone who has seen one of Cornwall's Atlantic gales or thick fogs blow in knows that being marooned on a tidal island, even one with a charming castle, is no joke. 
No wonder, perhaps, that tales of inundation, flood and rising waters are common in Cornish mythology, a kind of tale we may return to in this age of climate change. The most famous of the Cornish legends is Lyoness, a kingdom that was said to exist on a spar of land stretching from Land's End to the Isles of Scilly, its highest point the Seven Stones Reef that lies between the two. In Arthurian legend, Lyoness was Tristan's kingdom, lost beneath the waves when he was courting Isult at King Mark's court in Cornwall. Christian tellings position Lyoness as a kind of Babylon, submerged for an unnamed sin. And there is often a survivor, Trevelyan, whose supposed descendants still live in Cornwall, with his white horse on their coat of arms. In all the stories, Lyoness sinks fast, a terrifying storm or tidal wave submerging the land and everything on it. Strange tales still surface, with local fishers insisting they can hear the bells of lost churches on calm days, or that splinters of glass and wood, even forks, sometimes turn up in their nets when fishing over lioness. The Cornish name for St Michael's Mount, which rises across the bay from Land's End and Lioness, is Carrick Luz in Coos, the grey rock in the wood. As this name suggests, it's thought that the island was not always surrounded by sea, but by forest, and locals will attest that at very low tide you can still see the petrified wood of the trees that once covered the land here. So while there is little evidence of Lyoness, we know that Mounts Bay was indeed once dry, and the Isles of Scilly were joined up as one landmass. To create the coast as it is now, the waters did indeed rise significantly. Perhaps the tales of Lioness are not so far-fetched, and the legend has emerged from an extraordinarily persistent folk memory of the flood that swept into West Cornwall several thousand years ago. You may wish to pause the podcast here for a moment while you find somewhere warm and quiet to close your eyes, sit back and settle down just for a minute into this month's Found Sound. For July's Found Sound, I went to Heal Somerset, a rewilding site in the valley of the River Froome. In this landscape, 460 acres will be transformed into a nature reserve. One of the things that really strikes me is how few insects there are. It's quite windy today, but it's warm and the insects just aren't here. This is Jan Stannard, chair of Heal Rewilding. She took me on a tour of the site and together we listened out for the sounds we could hear.
Over the next few years, this landscape will undergo great change. There'll be much more variety in everything we see, whether it's the plants or the, or the wildlife. By reintroducing native wildflowers, bringing in larger animals such as hardy native cattle, and restoring wetland and pond habitats, Jan and her team will be improving the climate resilience of this land. The ideal soundscape, or the soundscape I believe will come to be, is deafening birdsong. There'll be all different species, they'll be singing loudly in the blousy hedgerows in the scrub. As we dreamed up the future soundscape of Heel, we listened to the birds that had already made their home here. Barn swallows, blackbirds, wrens. And we considered how marvellous it will be for everyone to have access to such beauty. Mackerel migration. Our coasts are circled by several swirling silvery masses of mackerel, and all of them are currently on the move. Northeast Atlantic mackerel comprise three distinct populations, genetically identical, but all with different spawning and overwintering grounds. The first, the North Sea component, overwinters in deep water to the east and north of Shetland and on the edge of the Norwegian Deep, an area of sea off the Norwegian coast where the seabed drops to a vast and cavernous 700 metres depth. In the spring, this mass of fish migrated to the central part of the North Sea, east of England, to spawn. Meanwhile, the western component spent winter near the continental shelf to the west, migrating to the south and west of the British Isles to spawn in spring. And finally, the southern component overwintered in the Bay of Biscay, west of France, and started to spawn there in the relatively warm water as early as January, migrating up to the Irish Sea and along the southern coast of England through spring. Having no swim bladder, they cannot stop swimming. They are the swift of the sea and one tagged fish was found to have travelled over 1,200 kilometres in 13 days. Female mackerel start to spawn at two years old and produce up to 20 batches of spawn through their spawning period, spawning as they travel. Although mackerel make full use of the water column from the surface to the depths, they spawn in the warmer waters near the surface, and this is where the eggs and later the larvae will float drifting passively until they develop into juveniles. Then they will begin to undertake vertical migrations from the surface to deeper water, feasting on zooplankton, before later joining the mass migration. July's perfume ingredient, geranium. This month in Fern Somerset Studio, the team has just launched the Summer 23 fragrance. 
a rich peachy scent with a touch of spice and amber. But in the top notes comes the delicious hint of green, blending perfectly with the richness of rose. This is the rose geranium, and it's a wonderful friend to the perfumer. The common name geranium actually encompasses two kinds of flower, geraniums and pelagoniums. The one used at Fern is Pelagonium graviolens, a scented pelagonium known as the rose geranium. Paired with rich, heady damask rose, it brings a lighter, brighter facet that is almost citrusy, thus lifting the powdery richness of the rose to bring texture and depth to the blend. Legend has it that the rose geranium was created when the Prophet Muhammad, after bathing in a nearby river, laid his shirt upon a mallow branch to dry. The mallow was so honoured that it transformed into a plant with beautiful pink flowers and fragrant leaves, the rose geranium. The Sunset Though the sunset is still late, it's getting a little earlier each day, and the nights are likely to be some of the warmest and clearest in the year. I like to take a flask of tea or something stronger out into the cooling dusk and lie back on a grassy bank to watch the stars appear one by one as the sunlight fades from the edges of the sky. Sirius, the dog star, is the brightest star you'll see a binary star whose name in Greek means glowing or scorching. It's one of Earth's nearer neighbours and has long been fascinating to astronomers, particularly in the month of July. In the Northern Hemisphere, Sirius becomes a morning star in July. In technical terms, it has its heliacal rising around this time each year, shining above the sunrise. This has inevitably led to the association of Sirius with all sorts of mischief. In ancient Egypt, Sirius appeared soon before the flooding of the Nile, while in ancient Greece and Rome its appearance marked the beginning of the hottest days of the year. It was thought that such a bright light in combination with the summer sun could cause ferocious heat, crop failures, madness, thunder and fever. Thus, the days or weeks following Sirius's heliacal rising came to be known as the dog days, a term we still use for the thundery, unsettled and unsettling heat of early summer. In the southern hemisphere, Sirius is also significant. Bright stars are important for navigation at sea, and Sirius has long been a useful tool for Polynesian sailors, for whom it was the body of the great bird Manu, which divides the sky into two hemispheres. In the southern hemisphere's July, Sirius is still a morning star, but of course it marks the onset of winter here, lending it its Tereo name of Takarua, which refers to both the star and the season. The Moon July's full moon is known as the Wirt moon, or the Mead moon. It will be a supermoon, the first of four this year, which is noticeably bigger and brighter than other full moons. It falls on the 3rd, at 12.39pm. The full moon rises near sunset, opposite the sun, so as in the east as the sun sets in the west. The last quarter moon falls on the 10th of July, 
at 2.48 a.m. The last quarter moon rises around midnight and is at its highest point as the sun rises. The new moon falls on the 17th of July at 7.32 p.m. The new moon rises at sunrise in the same part of the sky as the sun and so cannot be seen. The first quarter moon falls on the 25th of July at 11.07 p.m. The first quarter moon rises near noon and is at its highest point as the sun sets. A long hot day has given way to a cooling twilight. You are wandering through the village when you hear it, the sound of music in somebody's garden. Coming to rest by an archway, you lean against the gate and listen. This song is called Molianun, uh, which means let us praise. But don't be fooled, it's not a religious song, on the contrary. It's a, it's a song of joy and drinking and dancing and celebrating that the summer is come. Um, and it was written by a Welshman who had emigrated to America um, and he wrote it over there. And we can tell because there's a few references in the lyrics that talk about animals like um, the whippoorwill, which is a bird that we don't have here in Wales. Um, and he probably wouldn't have been able to write the song in Wales at the time because it was very sort of Puritan and the Methodist chapels were very strong. But he was obviously having a, a good old time over, over in the States. And this song is still sung very widely. People uh, know it. People sing it in the pubs and stuff and very joyous. So, Molly Anun, let us praise. Now... Lankyair hod yn glod, yn mae'r gwanwyn wedi dod Y geiaf yr oer i aeth heibio Daw y coed i wisgoi dail, a mwyniant mwyn yr hael A rwy'n ar y dolydd i brancio Molian o'n os hynsion Mae amser gwellir y fod talrywia a carol y tywydd drwg Fe nawn arian bel y mwg Mae ar wyri ond y mun Ol o'n pleinau Fulala, fulala Fulala, lalala Fulala, fulala Fulala, lalala Daw robin goch yn llon I diwnio ar y fron A cheilio gyrhedyn i ganu Ach am glywed wip ar wyl A siffant o dwrth y fil O'r goed wig yn mwmian chwibandu Molian nhw'n os yn llon Mae amser gwellid y fod halliwia Ac ar ôl y tywydd drwg Fe nawn arian fel y mwg Mae ar wyri hond y fil O'l o'n pleinau Fulala, 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 lalala Fulala, 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 lalala Fe awn i lawr i dre gwyrdd edwydd fydd ein lle A llawn der o gan i ac o ddawn siol A chwmpein i nawn ei deg o enethod glan a theg Lle ma'n mwyniant y byd yn disgleirio Molian nhw'n os yn llon Mae amser gwellid y fod tal y liwia 
A carol a tow with the rogue, and now Narian Bell the Mook, my Aroirian the Min, all on play Thank you for listening to this month's episode. Please do like and subscribe. All episodes are released on the first of each month. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also enjoy my book, The Almanac, A Seasonal Guide to 2023, which this year is themed around the solar system and the signs of the zodiac. It's also available as an audiobook, read by me, Leah Lane Dertz. As the Season Turns is produced by Jeff Bird and researched by Catriona Bolt. In addition to my own contributions, Zoe Gilbert, author of Mischief Acts, wrote and read The Herbarium. The folk song was played by Welsh musician Gwilym Bowen Rees, who also provided music for the intro. Alice Boyd is the sound recordist and designer who is travelling the UK through the year to make field recordings for each month's found sounds. This podcast has been created by Fern. Fern is an organic fragrance maker based in Somerset. Working with the rhythms of the seasons, they blend, barrel age and bottle four fragrances a year. Each fragrance is made to order for the names on the Fern production ledger. To join the ledger and find out more, visit www.fern.co or visit the link in the podcast description.